Good evening, everybody. And uh, as Kelsey already mentioned, welcome to our Wednesday night fellowship. This is really a time for us to come together, to gather around some good food, um, hang out with some some friends, new and old, and hear from God's word. Uh, All semester long, we've been um, doing a a relationship series here on Wednesday nights, looking at the relationships uh, that we have with God, with ourself, uh, with others, and the world. And we said at the outset that the quality of our life is best measured by the quality of our relationships. Right? These are relationships that Jesus has come to make happy, healthy, and whole again. Now, tonight we're going to see that Jesus and his gospel have the power to turn enemies into friends and strangers into family. The broken relationship between Jew and Gentile in Jesus' day is case in point. Okay, to the first century Jew, the world was really divided in two. There was Jew and Gentile, Jew and everybody else. Uh, Before Jesus, these two groups rarely associated uh, with one another. The division between them was racial, it was religious, it was cultural, it was sociological. In the temple in Jerusalem, there was quite literally a barrier that uh, prevented Jews from entering into the inner courts where Jews worshipped. It was quite literally a wall of hostility. But something happens after Jesus comes. Historically, these two groups who hated each other and avoided each other are all of a sudden starting to hang out in one another's homes. They're breaking bread together. They're fellowshipping together. They're worshipping together. They're calling each other names like brother and sister. So what the heck? Like, what happened? Well, the passage we're going to look at tonight is going to answer that question. How is it that Jesus is able to bring these two groups, like the radically other, together? And you, like unite them in, in a, a bond family. So we're going to look at Ephesians 2, uh, verses 11 to 22. Um, there we go. You can follow along up here. There's some Bible apps you can read there. And also in the front, there are some Bibles uh, available uh, to you. There are gift to you. So if you don't have one, take one home with you, uh, please. But here, uh, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. It's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This concludes our reading for tonight. I'm going to pray um, for us. This is, his God, this is God's word. It's not my own, so 
Let's ask that he would help us to understand it. Father, thanks for bringing us together uh, again on a Wednesday night, um, feeding us good food, feeding us with your word. I pray, Lord, by your spirit, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is ready to receive and to believe, uh, to understand. Please rightly apply this, this teaching uh, to our lives. Would you do this for your glory and for our good? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The opening question is, how is it possible for these two groups that previously hated each other to be reconciled? How does Jesus bring people together uh, like that? And to answer those questions, we're going to look here. The text we're looking at tonight mentions really four things, and I'll explain each of them um, sort of in turn. But here's the four things that I think we really get from this text. First of all, Jesus, here's how he reconciles us. He does so by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's a mouthful. I'll break that down. He reconciles us by the cross, right, by his blood. Jesus preaches peace to both sides of the aisle. And Jesus gives his Holy Spirit to both sides of the aisle. So we'll look at these each in turn, um, pulling from the text here. Jesus abolishes the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, you will find a bunch of laws, 613 to be exact. And some of those laws are moral laws, like the Ten Ten Commandments. But then there are other laws that are civil and ceremonial. And a lot of these laws are those like what food you can or can't eat, what kind of clothes you should or shouldn't wear, do these sorts of rituals, do these sorts of sacrifices. Now, by following these civil and ceremonial laws, the effect of it is that the Jewish people would have really stood out. If all of their neighbors are doing one thing and they're not eating shellfish or they're wearing only a certain type of fiber or threads, you know, if they're celebrating a certain type of holidays when nobody else is, they're going to stand out. And that was sort of the point. God wanted his people to stand out. He wanted people to notice them and he wanted uh, people to notice their goodness. I want you to imagine that God gave the commandment to only wear orange. And this commandment to only wear orange in some ways would be a summary of these civil and ceremonial laws. We could sort of combine all of them into this one command, only wear orange. Orange pants, orange shirts, orange hats, everything orange. You can picture it, right? Do you think these people would stand out? Yes, of course they would, right? Now imagine, I want you to imagine if all the people wearing orange were super kind compassionate, generous, and loving. Right? These people who are always wearing orange are opening doors for people. They're always cleaning up trash on campus. They're always helping out the homeless. They're always cheering for classmates at basketball games and intramural volleyball games and concerts. And they're high-fiving everybody whenever they get a good grade. If you saw a bunch of people wearing orange who were always like this, you'd wonder, what's up with these people, right? Why are they always wearing orange? But also, did you notice they're always so loving and so good and so kind, right? Their lives would beg the question, what is the secret with these orange people, right? And now that you've asked, the secret 
is that they all worship this living, loving God named Yahweh. This is why certain civil and ceremonial laws exist in the Bible. Right? God wanted people to connect the dots between his people, their goodness, right, and their God. In effect, right, by following these laws, they would be signs pointing right, to Jesus or pointing to right, God. There's two problems, however. A lot of the people who are wearing orange shirts in the Bible aren't always very nice, right? The orange shirts are grabbing people's attentions all right, but what people are seeing is these people in orange doing really ugly and hateful and wrong things, right? They see people wearing orange cheating and people wearing orange robbing one another and people wearing orange having sex with other people's spouses and so on and so forth. There's another problem. Some people in orange are avoiding all of those things that I've just mentioned, but they're incredibly self-righteous. Like they're jerks about it. Their strict adherence to the code gets people's attention, but instead of pointing to God, they're hogging the spotlight on themselves. They're saying, look at me, look at how good I am, look at how much better I am than everybody else. So in both cases, the people wearing orange fail to do what they were supposed to do. As you read through the Bible, it seems that this human experiment is a colossal failure, right? This idea, only wear orange, right? It's not working. And God's pretty candid. He's like, you're right. It's not working. It's not going great. And this is what the prophets in the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on and so forth, that's what they're all about. The prophets are God's complaint. You aren't getting it which is why I'm going to have to come to earth and do it myself. And that, the Bible says, is who Jesus is. Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He's Emmanuel, God with us. But here's the kicker. God didn't just become a human being. God became a Jew. He didn't just take on human flesh. He took on an orange jersey. (laughs) And from the moment he is born to his death and resurrection, the Son of God and the Son of Mary wears the orange jersey, and he wears it well. Jesus does everything that the law requires. He loves God to the max. He he loves his neighbors uh, to the max. And he does this all of the time with that orange jersey on. And here's what's remarkable about that. Even though he is perfect, he's not self-righteous. He doesn't hog the spotlight. Having grabbed our attention, he redirects it. And he points us back in the direction of his father, which is what all persons wearing orange were supposed to do in the first place. I have not come to do my will, but his, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen him. And you know him. Jesus is not just the perfect human being. Jesus is the perfect Jew who has come and pointed us back to God. And consequently, the need for these sort of orange shirt laws, as we might call them, they're abolished. 
There's no need for them anymore because Jesus has done it and done it perfectly. In abolishing these laws and then, in some sense, in taking down these walls, what Jesus does is he effectively creates a new kind of humanity. It says in verse 15 that he's creating one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He's not making Jews into Gentiles, and he's not making Gentiles into Jews. He's making Christians. He's making persons where these divisions that used to be propped up, racial divisions, cultural divisions, class, language, etc., right? He's making persons where these divisions just don't matter anymore. Right? They don't stand as uh, barriers preventing us from actually mixing and mingling with one another and having relationships with one another. This is the first wall that comes a crumbling down. But there's another wall, and even bigger than the first, that Jesus breaks down. This wall doesn't separate Jew from Gentile, but it separates both from God. You can see that in verses 14 to 16. I'll read it again. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility that is mentioned in verse 16 is not the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, but the hostility that exists between God and man. The Bible says that every man and every woman, Jew and Gentile alike, is a sinner. It says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And when the Bible says all, what it means is all, right? We all have within us this anti-God attitude that expresses itself as autonomy. Like, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to do things my own way that expresses itself as rebellion, right? As transgression, as a sickness, and as thanklessness, right? We don't want to acknowledge that there is a creator and we are his creatures. We don't want to admit that as our creator, he actually has the right to tell us what to do, like how life works best. We don't want to follow rules. We don't feel the need to say thanks. And in some, right, what this looks like, what this feels like is war, right? We're at war with God. This is the second wall of hostility that Jesus tears down. Jesus comes from heaven to reconcile us to God. While we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He does that through the cross, right, by his blood. He bears all the guilt and shame of human sin, all the damage that is done by our anti-God attitude and actions, Jesus pays for. Consequently, there's no more wrath or condemnation for those who hide themselves in Jesus, but instead, right, what we receive is forgiveness and embrace. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, 
but also all are offered, right, this free gift of salvation. He reconciled us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Right? It's done. It's finished. There's no more war. There's now peace because our sins have been paid for. He's converted sinners into saints, enemies into friends, and strangers into sons and daughters once more. And here's how this sort of plays out. If Jesus makes Jews sons and daughters of God, and if Jesus makes Gentiles sons and daughters too, it follows that both of them are now family. And if I look at you and you're like, oh, you're a son or a daughter of God, and I'm a son of God, right? Maybe when you say, I'm a daughter of God, that makes us brothers and sisters, right? In killing the hostility between us and God, God also in some ways kills the hostility between us as well, right? This is what we've seen so far in our passage. Jesus tears down walls and he builds bridges in their place. He bridges the gap between Jews and non-Jews, and he bridges the gap between God and man. But Jesus doesn't just build bridges, right? He crosses them, and he preaches peace to those on both sides. See, even though Jesus was a Jew, he didn't preach peace only to those who looked like him, talked like him, worshipped like him, etc. He didn't limit his ministry to his tribe. On the contrary, Jesus built bridges and then he crossed them, preaching peace and good news to those on both sides, to those who were near and to those who were far, right, who were radically different from him. In his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, Pastor Scott Sauls writes, and I quote, Jesus was a first century Middle Eastern Jew, according to the Bible, who was not physically attractive, who had no money, was sometimes homeless, hung around with sketchy people, and never spoke a word of English. Those of us who grew up in the West are different from Jesus in almost every way. Generationally, geographically, ethnically, socioeconomically, vocationally, linguistically, and more. In a very real sense, We here are the ends of the earth that Jesus was talking about when he delivered the Great Commission to his disciples. In spite of how radically different and other we are to him, he has extended his welcome to us. He has invited us into his circle. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells the story of two lost sons. The first son leaves home and he wastes his inheritance on reckless living. Like when he burns through his money and he bankrupts himself and he hits rock bottom, he decides to go home. I forfeited the rights of a son, but maybe my father will take me in as a servant, the son says to himself. But when his father sees him, he doesn't take him in as a servant. He takes him back as a son. He runs to him, he kisses him, he embraces him. He slides the family ring onto his finger. He covers his nakedness with his robes and he kills the fattened calf. For this my son was dead and is alive again. 
He was lost and is found. And people begin to celebrate. Now when the elder brother hears what's just happened, he gets angry. He hears the music and the dancing. He hears the bass. But he refuses to join the party. Now he's the one on the outside. And he says to the father, I've been keeping all of your rules and for what? Like what good has it gotten me? He resents his father. He resents the showing of grace. So in this story, you've got two sons, which is to say you've got an older brother and you've got a younger brother. One stays at home and keeps the rules fastidiously, albeit begrudgingly, which sounds a lot like the Jewish people. The other says, to hell with you and your rules, I'm going to do what I want, which sounds just like everybody else. But in spite of their differences, both of them are lost. Both find themselves on the outside. Both are estranged. And yet the father leaves his home. He meets both of them where they are at. And he invites them back in. He says to both, I love you. Come home. I come back inside. In his earthly ministry, Jesus is sent from the father to communicate very much the same. I love you. Come home. I come back inside. He crosses the biggest bridge of all from heaven to earth. And then he crosses another bridge and he preaches peace and good news to both sides of the aisle, to Jew and to Gentile alike. Not only does he preach peace to both sides of the aisle, but Jesus also gives his Holy Spirit to Jew and Gentile alike. And this is something that God promised to do a long time ago. In the Old Testament, the book of Joel, we read, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now what was for Joel a future reality is for us our present situation. It's a current reality. Look at verses 18 and 19 of our passage tonight. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It doesn't matter if you're, what your spiritual background is. You may have grown up Christian or Wiccan, Muslim or Buddhist, atheist or Jew. But if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God's own Son is now living inside of you and leading you too. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Simply put, if you have the same Savior, same Father, 
the same spirit, and the same inheritance in Christ, do you know what that makes you? It makes you family. Brothers and sisters in Jesus. Right? The walls come crumbling down. You're not strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. And this is true of those over here, and it's true of those over here. As we've seen so far in our passage tonight, Jesus tears down walls and he builds bridges in their place. But Jesus is not just in the business of building bridges. He's also building a home, right? A home made of living stones. Verse 22 reads, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right? Stones that were once isolated from one another are now being peered up, are now being pieced and, and joined together. And God points to that project and says, Yeah, that's my address. Right? That's where I live. Pointing to this house made of living stones. That's my address. That's where I live. Megan and I moved to Burlington, Vermont in July of 2012. And around the same time that we bought our house on Green Street, somebody else bought one of the houses across the street from ours. The house across the street looked a little bit shabby, but as soon as it was bought, it began to be renovated and renewed. The porch was leveled. The exterior got a fresh coat of paint. Windows were replaced. The chimney was pointed. The garage was built. And as this was all happening, Meg and I, we watched and we complimented the house, right? It's like, wow, that house is looking really good. It's really beautiful. But ultimately, what we wanted to know was, who lives there? Who's doing all of this incredible work? Because the house wasn't doing it, right? It was being done too. We complimented the home, but we praised the homeowner. Much the same way. Jesus has purchased a property. Jesus is renovating a home. You, me, and us. He's not just doing a renovating in our work in our lives individually. He's doing a renovating work in our lives corporately as well. And that is what the church is and is meant to be. A bunch of broken pieces being glued back together again. A bunch of misfit toys learning how to work and play together again. A bunch of mismatched stones being stacked upon and surrounded by others to create a place of warmth and hospitality and laughter and love. This is not just what God is doing at the local church level. This is what God is doing on this campus too. At the University of Vermont. It's what he's doing right here in our midst. In a campus ministry like RUF. See, on this campus there are many dividing walls of hostility. On this campus there are groups of people who do not come into contact with one another. And sometimes this happens on accident, but sometimes on purpose. You have white students and students of color. 
in-state students versus out-of-state students, rich versus poor, Americans versus international students, athletes versus NARPs, which I learned this week means non-athletic regular person. I got that right? (laughs) There's homosexuals and there's heterosexuals, Greeks and non-Greeks, I love you all, 80 pie and everybody else. <laughs> Stoners versus sobers. Skiers versus boarders. Humanity students versus STEM students. Those who are spiritual and religious versus those who aren't. There's Christian and Jews. Catholics and Protestants. Republicans and Democrats. Liberals versus conservatives. Those who claim to be woke. And those who claim they aren't. Here's the deal, right? Jesus, by the power of his word and by the power of his spirit, wants to tear down these walls of hostility and build bridges in their place. And he wants this, RUF, right, to be a place of unlikely friendship. To be a place where we could look around the room and say, I don't know if our paths would have ever crossed but I'm really glad that they did. See, I don't know if I ever would have chosen you, but God has chosen you, and God has chosen me, which means he's chosen us, and chosen us to be together in this room. And that is a beautiful, mysterious, funny thing. We are indeed brothers and sisters, right? Fellow citizens and members of the household of God. This is the renovating, reconciliatory work Jesus wants to do on this campus. And for our part, it happens when we follow his lead. When we, empowered by his word and spirit, do as he did. When we open our eyes to see where the walls of hostility do exist on this campus. And then, when we tear them down and we build bridges in their place, when we cross those bridges and we preach peace and good news to those on the other side, when we seek to be reconciled to God and when we invite others to do the same. Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus is creating in himself one new man in place of the two. A new man, a new humanity, right? a new kind of community. And it reminds us that this is what he's doing right here at UVM. It's a beautiful thing. And it's to his glory. Let's pray.